0: Hello, this is Annie Murphy Paul, and today we'll be mapping interoception on the 15-minute matrix.
1: Welcome to the 15-minute matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15 Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Annie Murphy-Paul. Annie Murphy-Paul is an acclaimed science writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Scientific American, and The Best American Science Writing among many other publications. Her latest book is The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. Published in June of 2021, it was selected as Amazon editor's pick for best nonfiction as one of 50 notable works of nonfiction by the Washington Post and as one of 100 notable books by the New York Times. She is also the author of Origins and the Cult of Personality hailed by Malcolm Gladwell in The New Yorker as a fascinating new book. Her TED Talk has been viewed more than 2.6 million times, and Paul is a recipient of the Rosalind Carter Mental Health Journalism Fellowship, the Spencer Education Journalism Fellowship, and the Bernard L. Schwartz Fellowship at New America. A graduate of Yale University and the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, she is currently a Learning Sciences Exchange Fellow at New America. Hi, Annie. I'm so excited to speak with you. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Thanks so much, Andrea. I'm really glad to be here. So as a practitioner and also as a patient, which I like to say we all are, I'm Mm -hmm. fascinated by this topic of interoception. And I'm wondering if you can start us out by articulating what interoception actually means.
0: Sure. Yeah. Interoception was a new word for me when I started doing the research and reporting for this book, I think we're all more familiar with the phenomenon under the name of gut feeling or gut instinct. We know that our bodies know things and kind of inform our brains, and it doesn't always go brain to body, but rather the other direction. And what was so interesting to me in doing the research and reporting for the book is finding out the mechanism by which that gut intuition or gut feeling arises. So what I learned is that As we go through our daily lives, we're encountering so much information, more than we could possibly process on a conscious level. But we are taking it in. We are processing it and retaining it on a non-conscious level. And then the question becomes, well, then how do we have access to all these patterns and regularities that we've picked up in our environment? And the answer is that it's the body that lets us know when we're encountering a situation that recalls a situation we've been in before. You know, that's when our palms might begin to sweat or we might feel our our heartbeat quicken or we might feel butterflies in our stomach. That's our bodies tapping us on the shoulder and saying, hey, pay attention. The body is readying us for a challenge that it has identified, you know? And what's so interesting to me is that, you know, I'm a writer. I live in my head a lot of the time. And it's very easy I find it very easy just to forget that I have a body at all, you know, and there's also so much, as we say, so much information, so much stimulation coming at us all the time in the external world that we forget that there's this flow of sensations in our internal world, inside our body all the time. And all we need to do really is take a moment and pay attention to that flow of internal sensations that's with us all the time. And then we've made contact with this internal world that is a little more subtle and it's quieter than the outside world, but it's really worth paying attention to. And that capacity to tune into our internal signs and cues is what scientists call introception.
1: I love it. I love it on so many levels. I think we've gotten so far away from tuning into, you know, from my lens, our bodies. But I know you break it down in the book into thinking with our bodies, thinking with our surroundings, and thinking with our relationships. And for me, a lot of the work that we do as functional nutrition counselors is bringing people back to the clues that our bodies give us when we are quiet. And it makes me think, Annie, like, in your research, did you find where we lost touch with that interoception? Because I imagine our ancestors didn't have the choice to live in their heads in the same way as we do today. (laughs) I
0: think that's right. Yeah, I think, you know, it's a very well entrenched idea in our culture, in Western culture, to separate mind from body as if that were even possible. But we have this idea that mind is different and separate from and superior to, in some way, the body. And that goes all the way back to Descartes and before, but it really dominates our way of understanding ourselves and our way of understanding others and our way of understanding the world. And it's radical in the sense that radical means, you know, surprising and challenging, but also radical, meaning going back to the roots of who we are as human beings to pay attention to the body and not just to the machinations of our minds.
1: Yeah, and I know, Annie, you and I were just chatting, and we share an unfortunate background in that we both lost a family member, me, my husband, and you, your father, to a glioblastoma. And I I don't know what your relationship was like with his care, but what I found was that it was almost like the neuro-oncologist's didn't even think of themselves as oncologists. They separated themselves in this higher way. Like they did the work that was superior to all work because, of course, it had to do with the brain. Oh, yeah. That's so interesting.
0: My own experience was that my family was really fortunate to have a very caring and loving, I would even say, oncologist who treated my dad, who saw him as a whole person. And I was so grateful for that. And then I also want to mention that he had hospice nurses at the end who were angels, really, you know, and cared for him again as a whole person. And I was so sad to lose my father, but we had really amazing people who helped us along the way with that devastating illness.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad you said that. And we, too, had uh, exceptional care. It was a long time ago. It did strike me, though, that it was almost differentiated from other oncology like that it was its separate world and you know maybe something we don't all have access to even being aware of especially in a short period of time when we think about interoception and think about like the things that pull us out or have pulled us out of our body our surroundings and our relationships like what are the things that you would attribute it to like what allows us to stay in that headspace?
0: Yeah, there's a bunch of things. I mean, I think one is what we've talked about in terms of just the intensity and the frequency of the stimulation that we're getting from our outside world, especially, you know, with all our devices always at the ready to provide some kind of distraction from what we might be feeling on the inside, just all the noise, you know, in our world. I think there's also a resistance to getting in touch with the feelings of the body because they're so closely tied to our emotions, you know, and that can be an uncomfortable place for people to be. It seems easier or cleaner or safer to be in the world of thoughts, you know, and that's very much the case with medical professionals. And this is a bit complicated because in some ways, medical professionals do need to learn to sometimes turn off those instinctive internal reactions, because sometimes doctors have to cause pain in order to heal. I'm thinking of things like giving someone a shot, for example, or even um, performing a surgery, you know, it's a kind of damage that you're doing in order to heal, you know, so there's all kinds of natural responses that doctors learn to inhibit. But I think sometimes that can go too far. And they really are cutting themselves off from that very natural and physical response to other people. And they're into their own bodies.
1: Yeah. So important to think about. I want to get back to the body, but before we do get back to the body, I want to talk about both surroundings and relationships. And I'm going to start with surroundings. I'm somebody who's very in tune with my surrounding. I need things to be orderly for myself to create. I like being inspired by beauty. What did you find about interoception and our surroundings?
0: Yeah, there were a bunch of research findings about our surroundings that really made me stop and think about how I had arranged my own space here and what I could do differently. I mean, one thing is the importance of having a sense of empowerment over your own space, that it's yours, it belongs to you in some way. I love having my own house and I think that's part of it, that it's my sanctuary, my space. There's a lot of research on the importance of having natural light and being having views of nature and then bringing natural materials and motifs inside because we are creatures who evolved in the outdoors and that's still the kind of space that our bodies and our brains respond to in ways that make us feel good in ways that allow our brains to operate in a, an effortless and effective way so, those were a couple things that affected me in terms of the research on space. A couple other things were that we need to feel that we belong and that there's cues and signals that tell us that we belong to a valued group around us. And we also need cues of our identity, of who we are, that sort of remind us of who we are in our various roles. And I try to think in terms of those what researchers call evocative objects, you know, surrounding myself with evocative objects that remind me of who i am as an individual and then who i am as part of the valued groups in my life.
1: Yeah, i love that. I love that for ourselves as practitioners, but also as part of our support in helping people to come into their healing potential, really exploring what their environment is like. I know we like to talk a lot about sleep here in from a functional nutrition realm and that sleep environment is so critical for being able to come into our deepest area of recovery. I mean, sleep is such a huge part of recovery, detoxification, and oftentimes people don't have the right surroundings for that to occur.
0: Yeah, I think that's really right. And interestingly, the research on the importance of you to nature and natural light originated in studies in hospitals that found that people heal more quickly, they experience less pain, they register fewer complaints, you know, with nurses when they are looking out on nature as opposed to like a brick wall, you know, nature is healing.
1: Yeah, yeah, so important. And that sense of belonging leads us nicely to that area of relationships. What does it mean to think with our relationships?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we we live in such an individualistic culture where each person is thought to be striving and achieving for themselves, but that's not really how human beings are wired. And it's not even really how thinking works, how creation works, you know, new ideas and new inventions. Those are always the product of many minds coming together. And so in that section that you're mentioning in my book about thinking with other people, I talk about things like how can we learn best from experts, you know, how can we make sure that as beginners or novices or learners that the knowledge that experts have is being transferred effectively from one mind to another, and then how we think with peers, you know, our peers in our profession or in our personal lives, and how we can use social activities like storytelling and debating and arguing with each other and even teaching each other as peers. You know, like if you know something that a peer of yours doesn't and you teach them, as anyone who's been a teacher knows, it's always the best way to get a really in-depth understanding of something is to teach it to someone else. And then finally, I talk about or write about thinking with groups and how it is that a collection of individuals becomes an entity unto itself, a group, you know? And a lot of that has to do again, with these very basic biological mechanisms like synchronous movement and sharing meals together, having emotional experiences together, all these things that maybe we've missed out on over the last couple of years during the pandemic. And I think we've really felt the loss of having that face-to-face, in-person contact with people. I hope that's coming back.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that it's just really interesting to think about how we can come together and kind of elevate the potential of our thinking brains as we do it out loud together through story, through debate. And also, I remember hearing you say in another interview that there's never any new Ideas, and I, I love that because we're always like taking and collecting and pulling new things forward from what exists.
0: Yeah, and it, it really connects us to this whole history of humanity. Really, you know, I mean, we're all just sort of like building on what other people have done, and I find that actually a much more appealing idea than this notion of like the solitary genius who comes up with something all by himself.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. So I'm curious about what you found through the research to be the benefits of interoception. How does it benefit us? It benefits
0: us in a number of ways. One is that it's very easy to not even realize what it is that you're feeling when you are living in your head, you know. And once you get in touch with those very basic biological physical reactions to the world around us, you realize that those reactions are, they're there to help us. They're really a survival strategy. You know, as I said, it's signs that your body is preparing you for what you need to do, but we can so often either ignore and miss out on those signals or we misinterpret them. You know, we think we're angry when really we're just hungry, you know, or we think we're sad when really we're tired and we need to sleep, you know, so paying really fine grained attention to what our bodies feel like can help us be more accurate in understanding exactly what we're experiencing and then it can also help us connect to other people because it's when we're paying very close attention to others and being very present with them that we can start to pick up in our own bodies what they are feeling you know it's like the body becomes a conduit to sensing what the other person is going through and therapists psychotherapists in particular and probably practitioners of all kinds are really the champions of this because they know they can use their own bodies as an instrument to help them understand and empathize with the other person.
1: Yeah, I love this. Before we hit record, I was sharing with you that one thing that the book illuminated for me is around something that I call functional empathy. And I'm always trying to help practitioners see where they have to build the bridge instead of being the bridge, right? A lot of people in caring professions, especially functional nutrition counselors, kind of put themselves on the other side of the table. They're feeling the other person's pain so much. But then on the opposite end, if I were to have like a gradient scale, what happens is they go up into their heads in what I call the information trap, right? So it's the empathy trap and the information trap. And what you're talking about with interoception is the balance between the two, as you said earlier, where we need to look at evidence and understand what's happening from an intellectual level, but then also feeling the person, but finding our equilibrium to me is the interception that leads to clinical intuition, which I believe we've lost over time. Yeah.
0: I talk in the book about how important it is to sort of go back and forth between tuning in to the external reality and to the reality of the other person, and then tuning back into ourselves, checking in to see how the body is feeling and kind of it's in that space of moving back and forth that you really get the richest kind of read on what's going on.
1: Yeah, brilliantly said. So before I let you go, Annie, can you share with us some of your how-tos? I know you said you changed your surrounding. I know in the book you talk about going out on walks, especially when you're (laughs) feeling stuck in your head. What are some of your other favorite how-tos that you've incorporated since exploring all of this and doing the research? Well, quickly run down a few. One is
0: checking in with yourself and your interoceptive sensations, as we've been talking about. Another is incorporating movement, physical movement into your thinking and working and not saving that, like for a gym workout at the end of the day, but actually trying to move as you think and as you work during the day. That's been really helpful to me. Using gesture, becoming more aware of your gestures and paying closer attention to other people's gestures. We talked about arranging your interior space to have cues of identity and belonging and to feel empowered and in control of your space. Of course, there's getting out into nature and bringing it indoors as much as you can. We haven't really talked about cognitive offloading, which is the idea of getting ideas and information out of your head and onto physical space, like a big whiteboard or a bunch of post-it notes. That can be really helpful. And then finally, thinking in terms of creating cognitive loops where you're not keeping your ideas and your information inside your head, you're looping it out in through your body or through your environment or through the minds of other people. And those can be the most fruitful and fertile kind of loops when you are enriching and enhancing your ideas, not by leaving them inside your head, but by getting them out there and Allowing the world to kind of fertilize them and then bringing them back home to express it in your own way.
1: I love that concept of cognitive offloading. Such a good one for us to anchor into. And thank you for sharing all the things or some of the things that you've incorporated. Mm. And thank you, too, Annie, for diving into this topic and doing this research and sharing it with all of us.
0: Oh, you're so welcome. It was really my pleasure. Thank you, Andrea.
1: The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks to Natalie Merrill, Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, and Rowan Bradley for their support in making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's one five We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our Full Body Systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your client's issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.